Hey everyone, Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today we're going to be a bit more sporty for this segment of my podcast interviews. If you're a fan of the Ultimate Fighting Championship or MMA in general, you'll be in for a treat. Today I'm joined by 18-time UFC fighter, one-time welterweight championship contender John Fitch. John has fought in other promotions such as the World Series of Fighting, the Professional Fighters League, and Bellator. He won the welterweight championship in WSOF and defended his title in the restructured Professional Fighters League. He ended his MMA career in Bellator MMA in 2020 and amassed a career record of 32 wins, 8 losses, and 2 draws. A pretty impressive career, if you ask me. So what are you up to these days, John? I have been focusing a lot on personal training, doing private lessons, small groups, seminars. And I also have been in the red pill space, helping guys masculinize their life. There's a lot of guys who've grown up without strong masculine role models, and they need permission to be assholes sometimes. And I can help with that. Yep, definitely, especially in these crazy times. So, yeah, to start off, what motivated you to pursue an MMA career? Well, I started wrestling when I was nine years old, and that carried me through college wrestling at Purdue University. While I was at Purdue University, I I obtained a degree in education, uh, PE and history, where the the courses I was going to teach. And I had a assistant wrestling coach, Tom Erickson, who was currently fighting in Japan, an organization called Pride. And... Tom had guys come to Purdue to work out and train and learn some wrestling. He had guys like Mark Coleman, Gary Goodrich uh, came quite a few times. And as kind of an extra workout, I would jump in and work out with those guys just to do something different than the normal weight cutting stuff. And it was kind of fun. And, you know, Gary was making good money fighting guys and these were bigger guys and I wasn't doing terrible with them. So I started thinking, you know, that's, these guys are making this kind of money. You know, they're making three times in one fight what I would make in a year teaching. I was like, maybe I should look into this a little bit. It seems like fun. They also had a lot of fun stories about traveling and dealing with gangsters and all kinds of just crazy stuff you, you, you would only see in movies usually. And I thought it would be an exciting life and something to do. So when I got out of college, I didn't have any debt. So I thought I would try fighting for a little bit. And that just led me to here. Mm, I see So at what point in your MMA career would you say you were at your apex? Man, um, I think, you know, right around the time, you know, 2010, I think about that time, I think my last fight with Tiago Alves, I was, you know, at my peak abilities at that time. My next fight was with BJ Penn. And I feel like I started faltering there a little bit because before that fight, I, I went vegan. I lost a bunch of weight. I got weak. I got lost some muscle mass. I got injured and I still deal with injuries from that time period. And I think that was just a major mistake that I made to my body overall. I was trying to go vegan. And um, I was able to stay on course and fight much longer and, and, and still have success. But you know, I was released from the UFC and uh, you know, I was married with two kids and it was not a great marriage. It became very difficult to train the way that I used to. And I was less active, which uh, 
means you have less opportunities to make money if you're only fighting once every nine months rather than once every, or you know, three times a year versus once every nine months. I was making less money also after I was released from UFC. So that, that plays a big part in your ability to train. You know, it's harder, harder to get things done when you don't have the money to get them done. Yeah, that's interesting about the fight frequency because I've followed MMA more or less for the past 15 years or so. So in big promotions, is it normal for fighters to fight two to three times a year, whereas smaller promotions, it's like it's much less frequent? Would you say that's an accurate description? Uh, well, no, it depends on, you know, if you're in a bigger promotion and you're more of a marquee guy, which I was, if you're a top 10 guy, or if you're somebody who's, who's talked about more often, somebody who people want to see more often, then you're, you're going to fight more often. If you're just starting out, that's a problem with a lot of guys who just sign with the UFC and they're fresh with the UFC. They may fight once a year. And when they're making 10 and 10 for their fight, like fighting once or twice a year is really not cutting it. It's hard to make a living. It's hard to progress anywhere if you're making that small amount of money. Uh, if you're on a smaller scale, though, if you're on smaller promotions, it's possible to jump around to different promotions and fight more often, uh, especially like a long time ago. There was a guy, uh, Jeremy Horn, mm -hmm. long, long time ago. And uh, he, he refrained from signing with a lot of big organizations because he only won one fight deals because he would fight on uh, Friday night and then go somewhere else to another state and fight Saturday night. And then he'd go and fight the next weekend again. And he was making less money per fight, but because he fought all the time, he was making, you know, he was kind of like a Muay Thai fighter over in Thailand. These guys would fight every two weeks. So he's, he had opportunity to make more money because he had the ability to jump around because he had less restrictive contracts. It's a lot harder to do now because I'm pretty sure even the smaller shows kind of tie you up for a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, you've had like some disputes with the UFC over payment issues and have even joined a antitrust club. Robbing people. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And joined like an antitrust class action lawsuit against it. What is this lawsuit center around specifically? It's that they've created a monopoly, monsopony situation where they control 90% of the market and the money. They have 90% of uh, the top 10 guys in every weight class. They bought up all the other top competitors' belts and contracts about 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago, to make those the only one, and they shut those other promotions down. They have had erroneous contracts, never-ending contracts, you know, likeness and identity contracts that never end, and they don't pay you for them. Just a lot of negative stuff, um, which, you know, we filed that class action lawsuit a while ago, and... They've made some major changes because if they continue to do business the exact same way, we can keep finding guys to file another class suit. And we found a second group of guys, uh, C.B. Dalloway and John Johnson, uh, we're going to lead that second suit, which started in 2017, to sue them again because they're continuing in the monopoly type behavior, monopolistic behavior. But they've made some changes. Since 2017, they're doing um, sunset clauses now in their contracts. So You'll sign a, a deal with them and you'll either fight the number of fights in the contract and the contract will be over or a certain amount of years, which is usually, it's just five years right now. That's the Francis Nagao is in a situation right now where he's able to utilize that position to leverage himself into a spot where he can, he can maybe go box or do something else and make a lot more money than staying with the UFC. 
Man, that's yeah, that stuff is pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, most professional sports will pay the athletes fifty percent of the revenue that's made, where the UFC is paying nineteen percent or less. And the most recent shows, they've been closer to fourteen percent. Wow. So the athletes, they may make more money on paper than what I was making back when I fought for them, but the percentage is going down. So UFC is making more and more money every year, but the percentage of that money that they make, less of it's going to the athletes. How does the UFC rationalize that, like that payment structure? They're just greedy fucks. They're just greedy. <laughs> like seriously, they, they just dance around the subject and act like we haven't seen the numbers and we don't know what their cost of operations are. We don't know what other combat sports are able to make, like boxing. They just dance around it and pretend that everybody's stupid and uh, you're dumb for questioning their pay. Mm. So yeah, this leads like to my next question. In your experience, were you treated better by promotions like PFL and Bellator MMA? And if you could expand on their payment structures, that also would be pretty helpful. Well, that's the problem when you have a monopoly in an industry. Everybody in that industry has to follow suit. They have to do the exact same thing that that monopoly is doing with their contracts and operations, or they get crushed because they can't compete. They can't do things the right way when everybody else is cheating and be successful. Or the other option is they do something more dirty. <laughs> they do something more scandalous in order to make a buck. And, and that's honestly, that's why you're seeing a lot of promoters popping up with bare knuckle and five on five and pillow fighting and whatever kind of stuff. They're just coming up with different things because there are people with money that want to put the promotions together and put on fights, but they can't get the named fighters that they need to sell fights. So they make up some weird style of fighting and now they have a new fight sport and they're a new league, even though they're misusing the word league. When did that trend kick off, would you say? Um, well, that those things have been happening the last few years. I think people are just realizing how much easier it is to stream live events. You know, there's a lot of marketing and sponsorship money in live events because it's the only way to get people to watch commercials nowadays. It's the only way to sell to people. It's hard to get people to watch commercials when they're watching their, their shows on Netflix or something else. There either are no commercials or people fast forward or they don't pay attention. But if you have a fight or basketball game or hockey game or anything, like people sit there through the commercials because they're waiting for the break to end and they're getting back to their game. Fighting has become much more popular for this reason because the uh, overhead's a lot cheaper and it's much cheaper to put on a show and it's much cheaper because you don't have to pay the athletes as much. So you'll see a lot more fighting things pop up because there's more money to be made for sponsors, promoters, all those people. It's a pimp and hose market and the fighters are the hose. Mm. Do you think MMA will ever reach like mainstream popularity, like say the NFL, MLB, NBA, and other leagues? I mean, I think it kind of already has in some sense. Like the viewership that the UFC does is, is pretty, pretty massive. It may not be as big in some countries as is as, uh, as, as here, but it's pretty big. I mean, most people know what UFC is. The problem is that's just one company. It's not the whole sport. The rest of the sport is kind of choked out. Like there's not much growth and it's harder for these other promotions to really be successful because the iron grip the UFC has on the market. There's more free agency and there's more opportunities for outside promoters to get in in boxing. And because of that, you see a lot more fights 
There are just way more fights going on in boxing than there are in MMA, which allows boxers to fight more often and make more money because the regularity of their fights. Mm, interesting. Yeah, what's the main difference, would you say, between boxing and MMA when it comes to their overall like promotion and like league structure, if you will? Uh, well, okay, so first of all, there are no leagues in MMA or boxing. A league has to have multiple team owners, okay? If you round it up, Bellator, 1FC, LFC, UFC, LFA, like, whatever, all, the, all these things, if you put them all together under one sanctioning body title, that would be a league. But they're not a league. It's just one promotion. It's one promoter. It's not a league. It's like the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys is not a league. Dallas Cowboys is a team. There's a team owner, and uh, it would be very restrictive if the Dallas Cowboys owned the NFL title, and it was the Dallas Cowboys World Championship title, and they only played against themselves. <laughs> and, you know, they had all the contracts, all the rankings, and did everything. You know, they did it all internally. That, that, that's not a league, right? Yeah. Um, but they use the word league because it, it misleads people, it confuses people, and they're not going to look it up. But yeah, the biggest thing that separates MMA from boxing is that MMA is not a sport. It is a production. Its business model is the same as pro wrestling, is the WWE. They have their own title. They have their own ranking system. They are the ones who gets to decide ascension towards the title. They get to decide who gets the title shots. In boxing, you have a sanctioning body who holds the belt. You have a promoter who's separate from the sanctioning body. And... You have independent rankings. You have boxers who can be their own promoter. Floyd Mayweather is his own promotion. Oscar De La Hoya promotes himself, uh, has created his own promotion too under himself. And those things create free agency and it forces promoters to work hard to continue to keep their athletes. Whereas in the UFC, you have someone like George St. Pierre getting on his knees and begging the president of the UFC for a title shot. That doesn't happen in boxing. It doesn't happen in any sport. Like Tom Brady never had to get on his knees and ask the NFL wow. to give him a shot at playing in the Super Bowl. You know, you earn things in a sport. To me, that's the most disgusting moment in MMA history is GSP getting on his knees and begging Dana White for a title shot. It's so gross. Yeah, that's like definitely not a sport. I actually agree with your assessment about UFC being kind of like a production because there is definitely a lot of politics with regards to the type of like big time contender yeah, fights. It's 100% pro wrestling. Like we have guys, we have guys who are in the office with Dana White and the guys from WWE talking about their business model and they were copying it, their merchandising agreement, all that stuff. They lifted it directly from them. They stole it. The only thing that's not the same is the fights aren't predetermined. Mm. Yeah, it would be like the equivalent of like in like the Super Bowl where you only allow like good teams, but with the caveat that they're like big market teams, not exactly the best teams, but only like the good teams yeah. of the big markets compete. And then like the mm -hmm. other teams that actually win more it games. It doesn't matter if they win. It only matters like, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how, how many games they win. It doesn't matter how good they are. It only matters how much revenue they bring in. If it was a popularity contest, we would, you know, the Super Bowl would look very different every year. And a lot of times, a lot of times too, those people who are getting those, those title shots, those people who are getting taken care of by the company, 
they just have they have contracts that are better, like better for the promotion because they're making less money. It's like, hey, we could give this guy who's who's got you know 15 wins a shot, but he's making you know six figures per fight. Or we could give it to this guy who's got four wins, who's making 50 and 50. So, you know, do we give it to the guy, do we give a title shot to the guy who's making $200,000 per fight? Or would you give it to the guy who's making $50,000 per fight? Oh, let's push this guy. Let's give this guy the higher ranking. Let's push him forward. And they lock in long-term contracts. So they'll sign a guy for an eight-fight deal. So if he's at 50 and 50 when they sign him in for an eight-fight deal, and then they have a $2,000 to $3,000 increment bump every time he wins, well, like, if he wins the next eight fights, he's still not making very much money. Wow. That's, yeah, it's really bizarre. Yeah, it's like only like MMA, you really see that, but... It's it's criminal. Yeah. It's criminal. It's what it is. It's criminal, and that's why they're going to lose this case. That's why, that's why they had to change their... Th- them changing their contracts, them changing the way they do business is an admission of guilt. They know it's wrong, and they try to change it just enough to avoid discipline. How exactly did they change their models with regards to the, the contracts? Okay, so one thing that changes the as soon as we we filed the class action lawsuit, they bumped the baseline fighter pay <laughs> to make it look like they're paying everybody more than any other league, right? So it makes it, hey, look how much we're paying everybody. We're not we're not a monopoly. The next thing they did was they started making their the identity stuff, the contracts. Like when I I got released for them for a short time because I didn't want to sign away my image and likeness away for for life, forever, for no money. And they changed it. So now after like two years, they won't own your image and likeness anymore. I think they still own my image and likeness. They have an option of paying you for your image and likeness too, which is a small change. And then the most recent thing was the big one was the the sunset clause, the five-year timeout on your contracts. After five years or eight fights, these guys are free agents. And that's what we're seeing right now with Francis Naganu. Some of these other guys are going to see what's available to them and, and probably take that same path. The big problem, though, is the UFC's already established themselves into a position where an individual fighter does not matter to the bottom line. Like one individual fighter isn't going to sway their revenue much at all. Even Conor McGregor. I had this, I had a guest on my show, uh, John Fish Knows Nothing, I have on Sunday nights, John Nash. He's a reporter who covers extensively the finances in combat sports. and we talked about this a lot. Yeah, Naganu's now in a situation where, you know, he's a, he won his title. He won, he won the heavyweight title. And that forces him into the championship clause, which means he has one year or three title defenses before he's a free agent. So he can sit out a year and be a free agent and be at his most valuable. And he could, you know, align a fight with anybody. They're talking about fighting, fighting Tyson Fury. And that dude will make, he'll make, you know, double the money in that one fight than he ever made with UFC. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And yeah, it, it's actually like even more screwed up too with like the really elite talent in the UFC, like in Ganu, how they still like treat them like mm-hmm. garbage, like very expendable. They do. They they hate, they hate fighters. Absolutely hate them. You see their emails, the way they talk about them, the way they treat people. It's like, I don't know, some kind of like penis envy or some kind of shit. But like Dana White absolutely hates fighters. He hates them. They're his slaves that he takes money from them. Like he, he never says anything nice about them behind closed doors. Like he's given, he's given business talks at Stanford University. There's a video of him going around. This is years ago. 
giving a, a business talk in Stanford University about how you got you have to underpay fighters, otherwise they won't fight anymore. <laughs> it's the most it's the most asinine the most asinine argument ever. It's the most bullshit argument ever. Like, how many rich, successful people have you have you met in your life? They're like, oh, I made too much money. I'm not going to work anymore. Like Warren Buffett, did he cash out? Like, oh man, I made too many millions. I made millions of dollars. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. The, the idea that that the fighter is going to fall off because he finds success, monetary success, it's the stupidest argument ever. It's not founded in any any statistic or reality. It's a bullshit manipulation that that uh, promoters use to sway fans into supporting them, treating fighters like shit. Look how much money this guy got. He makes way more than you at your your uh, your desk job or your your oil changing job or whatever. Like, and he's complaining about not making enough. What a piece of shit. Well, all, all the while they're fucking raking up, you know, millions and millions off the backs of these guys. Did Dana White stop working hard after he made his first billion? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's insulting. So insulting. But he was he's up there in this talk bragging about it. You guys can find it. It's like Dana White at Stanford business or something. Yeah, I'm just like listening to all of this with just utter shock because well, actually, when you think about it, it's kind of a well, you won't because you won't hear about it. You you won't hear about it in the news. You won't hear about it from the press because they're all just PR. That's another problem with uh, a monopoly, right? Because these journalists, so-called journalists, can't do their job or they won't do their job because if they do, they get ostracized by the company. Though emails will go out to the fighters and the managers, don't talk to these people, don't talk to this group. They won't give out passes for those uh, journalists to come to the fights anymore. So these guys will get cut off from all contact of the biggest show in the sport and they won't be able to make money. Yeah, just listening to all this makes me realize how the way they treat like fighter compensation is really like a microcosm of this really screwed up corporate economy where everybody's just like a cog in the machine and you get like poked and prodded by really screwed up management, ownership and all of that. Yep. And then you have to like put up with arbitrary woke standards depending on your industry. And in return for all that, you get kind of like measly pay and then you just go about your day slaving away living like in a perpetual state of anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's messed up. And it's really like it's permeating across a lot of economic sectors. And that's one reason why I'm so glad that I've like been able to transition, like working online and not having to like depend on like one paycheck. Yeah. No, I mean, it is. There's a, you know, the wealth disparity. I don't have any problem with people making money off hard work, but there's a major wealth disparity between the richest people and, and everybody else. And I think there's just, a lot of them are so out of touch. They just don't get it. They don't understand what a normal person's going through on your normal day. And um, yeah, it's ugly out there. It's really ugly. Oh, big, yeah, big time. So one, one good thing about MMA though, is it's, it hasn't become woke. You know, that is one thing that is good about MMA right now. Yes, it's, yes. It's one of, the, one of the least woke industries there is. Even though a lot of the, a lot of the journalists in MMA are woke, <laughs> yeah, unsurprisingly, like the journalist class, like, yeah. Well, it's the academics. The academics, yeah. you know, they're smelling their own farts thinking it smells like potpourri. Yeah. Oh, I have a degree from this place, so I'm smarter than you. Mm. Like, no, I think you're a dumbass because you had to go and spend all this money and get put into debt to get the same education that I did a Google search and I learned everything that you learned 
in four to eight years of college. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, you could do that through like blog reading and like YouTube, watching YouTube videos now. That's and they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, sure you learn as much. I'm like, yeah, like all the books you read, they're available online, every one of them. Yeah. Like I just didn't have to kiss your teacher's ass. Yeah, the entire education system in the U.S., especially higher education, is is just like another scam built up on top of another scam, mm-hmm. and which leads you to another scam of working like slaving away at a nine to five at a woke corporation. So yeah. now, yeah, I want to talk about like just like retirement in general because you fought for quite a while from like two thousand two to twenty twenty, if I'm not mistaken, which is pretty impressive feat. Because when you look at like a lot of professional sports, most athletes struggle to stay in their leagues for like five years. When did it dawn upon you that you had to hang up the gloves? Oh man, I just, um, it's become too hard to train. That's the real thing with me. Like I would love, like I've been going in, you know, this past week, I went in three days to work out and spar with the young guys and whatever. And I still got it. I can still compete. I could still fight, but the training camps, you know, to be able to put in a six to 12 week training camp and then go fight. I've done some, you know, some serious wear and tear to my neck, my thoracic spine. And it's just the stiffness, the soreness, like it's too hard to train. I can't, I can't train three days a week and expect to be successful in a cage, you know, and it sucks. It really sucks. I wish I wish there was some technology. I wish that stem cell, I wish I could get stem cells injected into my neck and I would be healed and I could have my I could have my 25-year-old neck again. That would be amazing. I would still be out there fighting and throwing down, but like the body wears out over time. It's just a fact of life. And you mix that in with uh having kids, uh went through a divorce, like not being able to pay to train the way you need to, that's a problem also, you know. And it's like, I have the kids, so I take time away from being with them and spending time with them in order to train so I can go fight. That's not easy to do either, you know? Like, no kids, like, I'm not going to pick you up after school. You're going to have to stay with these strangers telling you who knows what, teaching you who knows what. Well, I'm I'm working out rather than picking them up and spending the time with them myself. Like, I, I don't understand the point of having kids if you're not going to spend the time with them. Like, oh, I get to spend, you know, 30 minutes with them a night before they go to bed. I get 30 minutes with them in the morning when I wake them up and drop them off to school. That's ridiculous to me. I think that's insane. But that's like the norm for most people. And then they go on the weekend and they have a bunch of activities and things planned. And I don't feel like they're even spending a lot of one-on-one time with the kids during those weekend things. You know, they're putting them with some other group of kids. They got them in some other sport. And, and people just aren't raising their own children. And I, I don't know, I take issue with that. You know, other people do what they want, but I want to spend time with my kids and I just don't have the ability, you know, maybe if my marriage would have went differently, if I would have married a different person who would have been, you know, more supportive and just like being around the kids while I trained, you know, they could come to the gym with me, watch me train. They could all hang out together. <laughs> that would have been fine. But yeah, man, it was difficult. Like I, I was training, 2016, I was training for my world uh, championship fight for WSOF and like I was in a spot where my ex didn't want to like do anything with the kids. So she'd sit at home and the kids would watch TV. So I was like, this is not healthy. (laughs) So I I took it on myself to take the kids with me to the gym and that was fine. But you know, you still have kid problems. 
So like I'm I'm stopping in between sparring and grappling rounds because the kids got to go to the bathroom or I got to change a diaper or whatever. Just it wasn't a hundred percent ideal. And you know you kind of have to make that decision. You know you want to want to keep fighting or you want to have kids that aren't fucked up. Yeah, really tough call. And this this is a problem that we will touch upon later in this discussion that a lot of men have to face these days when it comes to this work family balance. Now, let's uh, shift gears a bit because since retiring, what I've noticed is that you've definitely taken a foray into like more political content. And judging from the stuff I've seen you post on Twitter, you're definitely like somewhere on the right slash libertarian spectrum. Would you say that's an accurate I'm, I'm an anarchist. I'm, the older I get, the more, the more I'm an anarchist I become. I have always been interested in politics since junior high social studies. Mm. And the problem was I believed a lot of what you saw. I didn't know the news was all full of shit until I got into my 20s. Like weapons of mass destruction really opened my eyes a lot. And I stepped away from the politics stuff. I was like, oh, these are just a bunch of liars. They just want to do whatever they want to do for money and oil and whatever. And I kind of pulled away from most of that stuff until around 2010-ish, I got into Ron Paul and sound money. A Ron and, Paul uh, baby here stuff. as well. And then, you know, yeah. So, and then paying taxes, because I'm an independent contractor. So we get paid and I got to save my money. And at the end of the year is when I pay my taxes. It's not taken out as we go. So I see like huge chunks of money going out and I'm like, what am I paying for? What is this going to? So that got me even more, more focused on what's going on politically. And yeah, I'll say more and more, I'm more of an anarchist. I, I think government's way too big. The problem is government's too big. The government's all up our ass about everything. It doesn't need to be there. It should focus on enforcing laws and defending the borders. And that's about it. That's the federal government. That's about it. Everything else should be done on a local level. And yeah, man, taxation is theft. They don't need our money. They don't need taxes. They do not. Like you're saying, oh, we live in a society and we need roads. We need this. <laughs> the roads suck. The schools suck. Everything they, everything they do and everything they take our money for, they're supposed to use it for suck. Even it's the military is inefficient. Shit, basically, They waste a ton, a ton of money. They waste a ton of money. And then to top it all off, they just print whatever they need. They just print money, print money, print money. They don't need our money. They do not need our money. They don't need one cent from us. They just print it anyways. So why the hell are they taking it from us? You have to understand that the only reason that taxes exist is to suppress wealth. That's it. That's it. The, the ruling class doesn't want competition. They don't want anybody else to make money and challenge them. So they keep us poor. Yeah, central banking is another form of taxation. I tell people that inflation is a stealth tax, and that's how you could basically finance a bloated managerial slash welfare slash warfare state. And I tell people this all the time, that it's like the mm -hmm. root of like all evil. Are there any other political figures that you've looked up to in your like philosophical journey? Rand Paul, you know, I liked him. I feel like he might've been one of the only good ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, like looking back, like I wish I would have paid more attention to like Ross Perot back in the day. Oh, big time. Yeah. You know, they made fun of him a lot for his ideas and a lot of stuff he was saying. But when you look back now and you understand what the news media and what, you know, pop culture and what Hollywood is, and they're just, they're, you know, they're just machines for the state. You start to wonder like, man, maybe this guy really knew what he was talking about. But then again, he could have just been another grifter like the rest of them. 
Yeah, I felt the same way with Pat Buchanan because they were around the same time. And Pat Buchanan was like one of the people that really got me into politics, especially like on a nationalist immigration restriction type of beliefs. Buchanan was like really instrumental for me. And he was also mocked and laughed at by people. And he's rolled around in the same circles like Ron Paul. And it's always like screwed up because these people are always like 20 to 30 years ahead of their time. And then that period they get like mocked. But then like 30 years later, everybody's like saying, oh yeah, they were right. <laughs> He's like, oh, he was right. Kind of, kind of like Alex Jones. <laughs> yes. I like Alex Jones. I don't care what people say about him. He was like pretty instrumental in. I mean, he, yeah, he does things over the top. Yeah. But like, He's been right about a lot of stuff, man. Been right about way too much. What political issues generally animate you the most these days? Oh, man. Anything about raising taxes irritates me. Anything about war and going to war irritates me. The whole push of the racist stuff, racism here, racism there, racism everywhere, is really just, it's uh, vomit-inducing because it's everywhere. And you can't watch, you can't watch modern television or movies or anything without it, something being crammed down your throat. And it's just, where do these people, like they live in this fantasy land, you know? I mean, well, I know now that they're doing it on purpose because the people who are at home watching this stuff now are ultra afraid and think that there's racists around every quarter and there's a grand yeah. dragon everywhere. And uh, it's, on, it's on purpose. That way when they can, you know, when anybody stands up to the government now, it's like they're automatically, first thing they say is, oh, that's a racist. Freaking Larry Elders, a black guy, ran for governor in in California. Oh, that's so clown. Trying to be the first black governor in California. And LA wrote an article about how he's a he's a white supremacist. It's the fucking most ridiculous shit ever. And like, who is believing this shit? But they're out there. Like, I'm trying to enjoy, I was watching uh The Peacemaker, right? Mm. I'm trying to enjoy, you know, that show. And it's, it's just everyone's, it's just they shove stuff, the racist stuff down your throat all the time. And I, I grew up in Indiana and like Indiana was like, it was like the number one place for the Klan when I grew up in the, in the country. And I remember there was some places not that far from us where the Klan would have, try to have rallies downtown somewhere, use their constitutional right to have a rally. And it was always like six guys showing up. It's never more than six guys. Never, you know, it was always under 10 people that showed up. And then there'd be a thousand people anti-protesting them. It was all peaceful and people were just making fun of them. And it was a joke. And I'm just like, where are they getting these ideas of racists everywhere? I don't know, man. I, I just, the nineties, we were already over it. We didn't care. Like it, it didn't come up. Yeah. The race politics stuff is, is like totally cuckoo. It, it really, the stuff they're promoting is largely what I've argued extensively in my articles and work I've done is anti-white hate. And they use a lot of vectors from mass migration to create demographic replacement through that. And then like just the constant blood libel being levied against like the historic American nation. And then you have the propaganda you see in television. It's, it's very multi-vector when it comes to how they attack people on all fronts. And I like part of my whole calling is to expose that like from a journalistic basis and also write about it. Yeah, it's, it's the new tool now of the state. Anybody who stands against the state is a racist, anti-LGBTQ, whatever. And an Islamophobe is whatever phobe, fatophobe, everything. <laughs> like all the worst things. That's what you are just because you don't agree with what the government's saying. We want to bomb this country. 
no, maybe we shouldn't bomb them. <gasps> You're a racist. It's like, what? I don't want you to go across the world and bomb bomb brown people. I'm a racist now because yeah. that it's, it's 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 maddening. It's really insane. Yeah, it's clown world stuff, and we see this like it's clown world like almost every sphere of life. And I think this is actually a pretty good transition to some of the spicier stuff in this discussion. Now, I think we have even more compelling views when it comes to like the relations between the sexes. You're what some people call red pill, if you will. Could you explain to my audience what the red pill means in this context? Well, red pill is a praxeology. Okay, it's a, a system of behaviors that can be used to enhance your life, make your life better. It's a way of looking at the world in a biological, behavioral way, not a feels-good way. Right? It's looking at the world and its ugly truths, okay, and understanding that we're animals at heart and we have animal programming, and because of that, we're going to have emotional triggers to certain stimuli that are based upon our, our animal instincts. You know, we have a baseline priority for survival and we have a baseline priority for reproduction. And our bodies are going to try to figure out a way to solve those issues one way or another. And you need to understand these things. You need to understand that there's a, a, a massive polarity between men and women. And we're not the same. We don't think the same. We don't have the same type of brains. Our brain waves are different. There's massive amounts of data that can be looked at to show the differences between men and women. And you have to understand these things if you're going to navigate yourself through life without being taken advantage of, really. Yeah. So how did you become acquainted with these concepts? Because you see a lot of people go through these type of relationships and they get taken for a ride. And eventually, the more proactive types, they will delve through Google and many of the vast crevices of the internet and come across these ideas. What really got you to embrace the red pill? Yeah, like, you know, the rule got zeroed out sort of thing, you know, with my, uh, my marriage relationship, not understanding the human dynamics between relationships you know, put me in a bad spot. And I'm, a, I'm an athlete. And as an athlete, I'm always very analytical about my behavior and why things happened. I break them down. You know, I have a fight. I watch videos of it over and over and over again to figure out, okay, look here, this is this happened. This is what happened here. I need to fix this. Uh, I take videos of training, workouts, and me doing technique. And I watch them back and I can analyze them and make better choices the next time around. So I, I started doing that. And that's really what led me to stumble upon all of these red pill creators. And, you know, I think deep in my heart, you kind of always know. I've always known because I'm, I'm good at recognizing behavior patterns. I think that's why I've been successful in my life is because I can recognize patterns. And when you can recognize patterns, you're able to, to take advantage of those patterns and, and utilize them to your advantage. So you're kind of raised being told things are a certain way, but you see them in a, in a different way. And your programming, I, I think, keeps you from really embracing it. But now that you know, I went through my divorce and I've kind of educated myself more on human behavior and really broken things down into a more analytical way rather than emotional way. It allows me to see why things happened, what's going on, 
And you just, once you see the patterns, you just, you can't unsee them. You know, I, I, you become fully red-pilled and you start watching movies. Like, you can't not help but see, like, what happened, you know. I think Star Wars is a, is a big one. You know, Anakin's whole deal, like, he was super blue-pilled and very emotional. And, like, this whole path towards the dark side was because he would not accept red pill truth. Yeah, that's actually, I actually never thought about it that way, but that's a pretty good point because a lot of the culture, when it comes to like the intersexual dynamics, conditions people to basically put women on a pedestal as opposed to talking about like traditional gender roles, which have been fully reconstructed by the state corporations and other institutions these days. The idea that men act a certain way and women act a certain way because we're conditioned to, because of the patriarchy, rather than this is how we're biologically programmed because this is how we find the most success and this is how we're the happiest. You know, we can observe chimpanzees and, and gorillas and watch their behavior patterns and their mating strategies and be like, okay, yeah, yeah, they do this and this, this. But like, we can't do that for us because we're magical spiritual beings or something. There's just this smugness kind of like, oh, we're not animals. We're so much better than animals. We don't behave like animals anymore. It's like, yeah, we do. Like everything you're doing is baseline, those basic survival and reproduction strategies. They all fall, everything you do falls into those. Like the reason why you do things. Yeah, the blank slate mentality has really infected a lot of people's thinking when it comes to these relations, and they uh, it's rotted their brains. Yep, and they think that just like socially engineering people's behavior and treating them like basic like inputs, whatnot that can be changed because uh, through tinkering and all that will create some desired result is really naive. It actually creates some really nasty unintended consequences that we're seeing play out in Mm -hmm. real time right now. And I've argued with some people that U.S. is like in a process of like cultural collapse due to a lot of the stuff that we saw kick off in the 1960s, both in terms of public policy and also the culture, how it's changed dramatically. The viewpoint that everything is now, Rolo says it's a gynocentric social order. And what that is is basically everything is looked at through the lens of a woman and how it affects women and whether or not it's good for women. And if it's not, then you're bad. Like you can't say, Hey, is this best for me as a man? Is this best for men to do things this way? Or is it best for women to do things this way? Not if you do that, you're a misogynist, you're a pig, you're all kinds of problems. But there is a difference between men and women. You know, I had, I had a 30 minute argument with a couples counselor about that fact, which blew my mind. I felt like I should have been able to sue him. Like you're, you're telling people, you're counseling people, and you're telling them that there's no difference. There's no biological difference between men oh and women. Oh my God. That seems, that seems illegal. Yeah, this stuff is just beyond nutty. And honestly, I don't blame a lot of people for sitting out on the whole marriage concept because, like, frankly, the modern... Western women, like, let's be blunt, is not up to par for... Well, I mean, it's part of my anarchist beliefs is, you know, part of being anarchist is like, why why should the state be involved in your relationship on any yes, level? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Why do I need to go to them? And like, why, why? Like, if I want to have a religious ceremony and, you know, we go to a church, we have a priest and whatever, and we have our agreement with our families there, like, that should be enough. Like, why am I involving 
lawyers and the government into this relationship. It's an overreach, 100% overreach. Yeah, and it's like the the jackboot of the gynocracy when you when you think about it too, because it really does not favor the male whatsoever in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 100% for the female, even in a relationship. Like, why? Are, if you're top tier guy, if you, if you can attract several women and date several women at the same time, like that's good for you. That's a good thing for you. Why should that be viewed negatively by anybody? Women don't like it. So like, it's bad. That makes no sense. Like, okay, well, I'm not a woman. So it's not bad for me. The irony is if you're like really in the field and know what's up, a lot of these women are doing the quote unquote spinning plates as well. So you're kind of, um, you basically have well, that's, to- that's what I, that's what I tell guys all the time. When I, you know, I do consultations with guys, I have programs for guys. And that's what I tell them is like, you need, you need to work like a man and date like a woman. Yep. Okay. You need to be able to put in the 80, 90 hour week to be successful. You need to be able to grind and be obsessed about what you're doing in order to be successful. On the other hand, you need to date like a woman. Women have 10 guys in their DMs. They have guys messaging them all the time. They might not be having sex with all of them. Okay. But they have, they go out with them. They have drinks with them. You know, they come over and they'll, they'll put together their Ikea furniture. They have utilities for them. They have uses for them. Why should you do the same thing? Why can't you do the exact same there, the same thing they're doing? They have guy friends. You should have girlfriends. Yep. Agreed 100%. That, that's like how you have to adapt in this context because the 1950s model of relationships, like, yeah, it had its place at one era, but I think that ship has sailed a long time ago, and frankly, people need to adapt because, or just gonna. It wasn't. It wasn't just the 1950s. So it was from agricultural to when they started using machines and everything. Industrial, sorry, agricultural to industrial to more of the business. That's when they started fading the business. Those things, yeah, they had a purpose because you needed a lot of children. You needed a lot more of your people in that society to be paired off one on one and having lots of children because you needed farmers. You needed, you needed soldiers. You needed people to run the machines, right? They had to have those things. So there was a big push in that. So you end up getting a lot more marriage and pairing off with beta men. And I think that's what really pissed the women off. That's why I think where feminism came from, because they were forced into these relationships with guys they thought were beta. And now we don't need as many workers. You know, we don't, we don't need as many people having as many kids. So now we're falling back to a period pre-agriculture where, you know, women want the top guy. So you're in a situation where if you're, you can place yourself into that top position where you're a top 10%, top 20% guy, you're going to have access to a lot more women. That may not be good overall for a society, but I mean, for a lot of guys that are living today in the West, what the hell has society done for you lately? That's actually a really good question because you see among a lot of these like younger millennials and Gen Z types that these guys are just wandering aimlessly when it comes to like their sexual relations, self-improvement and other aspects of life that you have to have to like to be functional. What kind of advice would you give them in general from like dating, self-improvement and other aspects of like just personal development? Man, always all your, you know, self-improvement and self-development is never, never ends. You're always, you're always going to be working, always going to try to be leveling up. It's a never-ending journey. So don't think that you're going to get to some kind of level and stop. It, it doesn't happen. But mostly, stop being a degenerate. Like, 
you know, celebration over victories is, is, is a must, but like just celebration with no victories or no achievements is degeneracy. If all you're doing is partying and, and you know, YOLO and you're not getting anywhere, like what's the point? Your teens and 20s are for hard work, not for partying. Not for that's that's what that's what girls can do because you know women are born, men must become. So if you're partying in your teens and twenties, like you're gonna be in a bad position in your thirties trying to still become. It's gonna be hard. Work hard in your teens, work hard in your twenties, develop yourself. Okay. Talent stack, get goods at lots of things, do interesting things, become an interesting person. Okay. And um don't give your attention away for free. Don't ever give your attention away for free. Yeah, those are pieces of advice I wish I would have put into action when I was in my 20s, but I've been able to catch up in my late 20s now into my early 30s. So Mm -hmm. it's better just to start now and stumble than to just procrastinate and not take action because we only have so much time on this rock. And that's why I excelled because of sports. You know, I put a lot of time and effort into sports and and self-development in my teens, in my 20s. But the big mistake I made was... I gave my attention away for free into video games. So there was a seven-year period of my life where, you know, all I was doing was fighting and spending time with my girlfriend at the time and playing video games. And, you know, playing video games, it's a form of giving attention away for free because I wasn't getting anything out of it. Oh, you're getting entertainment, but like, I'm not learning anything. I'm not developing skills. I could have been using that time much more wisely. You know, I could have been developing a business or learning stuff about business, making side money, side hustles. And, you know, thankfully I was very successful fighting, but I'd be in a much better place today if I would have taken most of that time that I was playing video games. I was playing like four to eight hours a day in between my training sessions. If I would have just been reading books, I think I probably would be way, way more successful and have a lot more wealth than I do right now. Yeah, I could definitely relate on that front with my high school and college years with regards to video games. That was just like pure consumption. Like that's like basically a microcosm of like the U.S. economy in general, where it's basically oriented on unproductive debt accumulation and mindless consumption. Yep. And it's normalized. It's so normalized that if you tell people that, oh, I don't do that, they look at you weird. They look at you funny. Like you're, there's something wrong with you. You don't play video games. You don't do this. You know, like I, I stopped watching porn four years ago. People don't believe me. Oh, shut up. Yeah, you do. You're lying. It's like, no, I, I really don't. I stopped watching porn. Unless it's a movie that me and my girl made, like, I'm not, I'm not watching it. I'm not looking at somebody else's dick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tell people a lot of the time that they have to really upgrade their social circles. If you're just around like normie, mindless consumers, you, you got to level up, man. There's like some people that, basically will bring you down. I think that's one thing I've really improved upon in the last like decade is that they want you down on their level. Exactly. That's the long and the short of it. Well, John, I really enjoyed this discussion. So you're pretty active on social media. Feel free to plug your social media accounts and other services that you offer. Come uh, check out johnfish.net. I got everything right there. But I I do, um, you know, consultations on fitness, fighting, and, uh, you know, dating stuff too. It'll help you level up. I have Chode to Chad program that I offer. Go to my website and, and book me there. And then, yeah, all my social medias are linked to that website too. So you can follow me and, and uh, interact with me. I, I, you know, respond to DMs often. So feel free to reach out.
Great stuff, John. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And to all my listeners, again, thank you for tuning in. El Nino has spoken.